good to be in the church, in my church, our church, and it's good to listen to the coronet. Uh, we've been singing together quite distant past. I've lost my voice. You've kept yours. And I praise God for your sons-in-law who have become your sons. And they praise God in the same way that you have all your 80-plus years, praise the Lord. It's good to see all of you, as Kramer said, <clears throat> I was short in, in the preparation time, but I was also short in sleeping time last night. When you've got two little boys, but not only them, I've, I've had the fortune to have a present given to Yolanda and myself by our son and daughter. It's two little puppies of six weeks old, and they're now 10 weeks old, and they're starting to bark. So uh, with all the love that we have and enjoyment that we have, uh, when sleeping time comes, it's, uh, it's quite a job to get to sleep. <laughs> Opa is the theme song, I think, in their vocabulary. But it's good to be here, and I really appreciate the elders for giving me a time to just explain some of the parts that I find very interesting. I titled this service, uh, Living Again for God. Living Again for God. You know, I, I like the book of Ephesians, as I've said. We studied it two quarters ago. And um, I got to the message translation, and I've said this before in Sabbath school. It's good always to not only read the verse, but go to the front of that chapter or that book and read the summary of what the authors of that specific Bible says about what is to follow in that book. Ephesians has something like that in the front of that book as it starts, and I love the way the Message Bible explained that. It says, what we know about God and what we do for God, two different things. What we know about God and what we do for God have a way of getting broken apart in our lives. What does he mean? He means the moment the unity of belief, that's faith in God, right? The moment the unity of belief on the one side and behavior, that unity is damaged in any way, we are incapable of living out the full humanity, the full life for which we were created. Is there's a separation of these two sides of the same coin, knowing God and honoring God through obedience. He then says that introduction, Paul's letter to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart, these two things, in our sin-wrecked world. The book of Ephesians begins with an exuberant exploration of what Christians believe about God, their faith. Okay, so he first explains 
Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, what we believe about God. In other words, their faith. And then, like a surgeon skillfully setting a compound fracture, preparing him for that fracture, sets this belief in God into our behavior so that the fractured bones, which is belief and behavior, knit together again in a way that only God can. It's intricate, right? But you follow your good students, right? So how is this done? Knowing God, obeying God, faith and obedience. The moment the unity of belief and behavior is damaged in any way, we are incapable of living out the full harmony for which we were created. Once that is damaged, the result is death. If that unity is damaged, death is the result. Paul describes the condition that afflicts all of us as death. He means that without faith, we are dead. We're not alive, opposite of death. It is really hard to realize that without Christ, we are really dead. Yes, we may be beautiful, strong-bodied, <clears throat> have an active and retentive mind, but he or she is dead. Uncle Christ takes over this dead body and restores it to life. An innocent, a beautiful person who does not know Christ is just as dead as a lifeless body, a corpse on the slab of the moor. All we look, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned away, everyone to his own way. This is a bad account of the sinful man. That sinful man. And the Lord hath laid upon him, Christ, the iniquity of us all in Isaiah 53, verse 6. We read that, it's a common verse, that the Lord hath laid upon himself the iniquity of all of us. There are many of us who've been brought up well, who have good social graces and a very benevolent outlook on those around us who are honest, we say, and truthful to a large degree, who are law-abiding citizens and charitable. These people may even be so, you and I, so well-liked and so successful that they, they themselves may come to think <laughs> that they don't need a savior. Aren't we like that sometimes? Look, I do my thing. But remember Hebrews 11 verse 6. It says, it is impossible to please God from, apart from faith. It's impossible to please God apart from, without faith you cannot please God. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists, he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. He exists and he's very, very careful to respond to those who seek him. That's Hebrews 11 verse 6. So the opposite of death. 
under such disunity between knowing God, faith, and living for him, is obviously life. The opposite of death is life. And it's often referred to, watch for this word, joy. Life is equal to joy. The fullness of life, the joy of the Lord. As in the following text, I will explain. The joy of the Lord is my strength, Nehemiah 8 verse 10. Then, in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Though you have not seen me, you love me. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Message Bible says, you're filled with inexpressible and laughter and singing joy. Is life equal to joy? Will you accept that? It says also in Romans 5 verse 5, real joy comes from God. Replace it with life. Has invaded us, conquered us, and liberated us from eternal death and sadness. Who has given us hope and joy. Hope and life, because he has poured out his love within our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Real joy comes from God. What is joy? Equal to life, right? But the last or the best example of what joy encompasses is David's praise of thanksgiving for the great deliverance which God has brought him. The psalmist thanks God for not allowing his enemies to rejoice over him. Did he have enemies? I would imagine. You know? He also thanks God for healing him after he cried out for help. And he sang this song. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night. Joy comes in the morning. What is joy again? Love. So life comes in the morning. Can you imagine him lying in bed? He's got the sin threefold. He's got adultery on his name. He's got the killing of the lady's husband, Bathsheba. And we have also his not owning up to his sin. Can you imagine him lying in bed, waiting for the morning, waiting for the joy, for the life in the morning? Joy comes from God, not from within, not from within himself, within myself. We have joy when we look outside of ourselves to Christ. Without Christ, it is not only hard to find, but it is impossible to find that joy. So, joy isn't the absence, to define it, of sadness, but the presence of God. Real joy exists even amid sadness. Life exists amid sadness. And real joy doesn't mean you always have to have a smile on your face. There's a deeper meaning to joy 
as we've tried to explain. This brings us to the core text for this morning's lesson. I wanted to say I'm not going to be long, but you know, when people say that, you must be alert. <laughs> the real core of this morning's lesson comes in this following way. Restore in me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I'll repeat that. Restore in me the life that comes from your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit to do that which is my belief in you to obey. Restoration is a recurring theme in the Bible as those who strayed from knowing God intimately, his teachings and love of God, sought to restore their divine relationship with him. This is where restoration fits in. A few scripture examples of such restoration will illustrate the deep significance of this word restoration. We have a definition in our minds of restoration. I can ask you and you'll give me a a, a definition out of the, what do we use? Dictionary, right? These days we just use our little fingers. Okay? Amos 9 verse 14 says, and I will bring my people back from exile, right? And then it says, they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. This truly represents a newness, a restoration to their previous normal and joyous life. That was the promise in Amos to the children of Israel. Isaiah 61 verse 7 said, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so, you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Everlasting life will be yours. This is the last one, the second last one, Jeremiah 30 verse 17. I'm still exploring this whole concept of restoration, right? Restoring. Job 30 verse 17 says, I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. And then the last one, Job 42 verse 10, and we know the story of Job, how he was totally destroyed except his person. After Job had prayed for his friends, this is the text, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. Do you have a concept of restoration here? In all of these verses, be this the children of Israel, be that Job, and be that <coughs> all of these psalmists that have prayed for restoration. The biblical example by these accounts are testimony of a very profound definition of restoration. Something above and beyond the normal definition of restoration. We see it in the justice system. Restorative justice means 
giving back what you had. That's the objective of justice. But this is more than that. The dictionary defines restoration as the act of returning something to a former, original, normal, or unimpaired condition. That's the normal definition. The biblical meaning of the word restoration is to receive back more than has been lost to the point where the final state is greater than the original condition. That is the multiplier effect of God's grace that restores manifold. An illustration of this improved state of the restoration is something that I don't have an interest in, but I have seen it being performed. And that's the restoration of automobiles. Have you been to a museum of automobiles? I know of one that I've visited, the Rupert family's one, and they've spent a fortune in just restoration of cars, cars that dates back a hundred years. You go there, you'll be astonished to see also the evolution of the motor car. That restoration takes pains to bring that motor vehicle into a state that is almost, almost as good as the original one. But let me take it further. They often restored more than what the original condition is. From the brakes to the engine's air conditioning, power steering that they didn't have. So that restoration is something more. Full restoration will include modern advancements of technology. That is what we speak of when we speak of restoration. God is not looking to restore you to the exact condition you were in at the time of your failure. But God intends restoring you to the more than what you were. Yesterday, today, and the future will see you with power brakes, power steering, you know, just that edge above that which you had initially. And if you speak to the engineers here of motor vehicles, they will tell you the enhancement. You can't just speak of, I have a motor vehicle. You must now uh, describe that vehicle as being one that has got all of these. Look at the modern cars and you'll be surprised. That's the restoration that comes into the old 1960 Valiant, you know. And this is what the point is, equipping us to live for God again. Equipping us to live again for God. So the point of restoration in the, in the sense of its use in the Bible is that someone or something is improved beyond measure, unlike the regular dictionary def definition of restoration, which is to return something back to its original condition. Repeatedly, though, God blesses people in the Bible for their faith and for their hardships by making up for their losses and giving them more than they previously had. It is God, through restoration, that makes your name great and grants you a testimony 
and it will be done while you behold his mighty hand in your life. I have one piece of, shall I say, in my house, uh, it is crockery, it is actually a beautiful bowl and something else as well, as, as well that was made in Turkey when we were there. We visited this pottery where this person actually demonstrated and made us something that we could bring home. And that piece is something that we saw him take the lump of clay and really making it. But then he's not satisfied. He takes that, roll it up again, moistens it again to a specific texture, and then starts all over again. That's another concept of restoration. I once preached here, and I made mention of how pots are remade to look better after they're broken, to look better than what they were, and more costly than what they cost originally. That is the sense of restoration. And so the, the, the Bible's definition of restoration is a much broader one. Let us look at what David meant when he asked God to restore to me the joy, the life of your salvation. That moment in his life came after the incident of committing adultery with Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin, and David just uh, uh, confesses there. The story involves not only adultery, but Bathsheba's pregnancy, an attempted cover-up, and David's eventual murder of the husband of his lover. In Psalm 51, he cries out to his Lord, Create in me a new heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You see, David asked to restore the joy, the abundant life that he knew. But more than that, the time between David's sin and Nathan's confrontation was some months before the child had already been born. And during that time, David suffered inner torment, as he expresses in Psalm 32. And you know that one as well. Psalm 32 goes into great depths about the way he felt. We can read one or two of those verses. It says, a spirit, a psalm of David. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Oh, what life there is to those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what a joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. That's a repentant spirit, beautiful as it is. And when David pleads to God to restore the joy of your salvation, he's asking that he would again have the fellowship with God that he once knew and enjoyed. 
David could not enjoy God's fellowship while he had unconfessed sins just like you and me and can lose the joy what comes from our salvation. We will not lose salvation. You see, sin cannot separate us from God, but it can rob us of the joy and the enjoyment of a close relationship with our Savior. Why is this important for us today? We cannot restore ourselves, first of all, but must be restored by an outside power, the power of God. David recognized God as his shepherd because God watches over him. He does not find himself in need of anything, as we read in Psalms 23. He lacks nothing. In contrast to his wretched experience we just spoke of, we find David... At the time when he composed this psalm in a different mode, this time it was not a song to prepare for battle or celebrate a holy day, but this time a joy, rather joy, a time of relaxation in the presence of God. You see the Psalm 23? You know it by heart? Restoration involves reflection. He reflects on his life. David's soul was restored as he looked at life from God's vantage point. He felt protected from his enemies, though they are around them. He doesn't fear them. Restoration includes thus replenishment as well. Both rest and reflection leads to a renewed vigor to again, the title of the sermon, again live for God. With this perspective, David could live with a restored soul prepared for the problems of the day. He knew God was with him, cared for him, as the psalmist says, and would never, never, ever leave him. There was no battle too big for him to face in his life. The same is true for you and me. If we sincerely desire to have God restore our souls, we need to make time. Make time to, first of all, rest, and then reflect, and then replenish. To be restored, I must say, takes time. Focused on God and his greatness is important. To renew us with hope and joy regarding this life and in anticipation of eternity. Rest Renewal is very important for us to go forward. The Lord is restoring you to be a better version of yourself. You aren't being restored to the exact person you were before. No, you're being restored better versions of yourself that you ever were. The Lord is restoring you for his glory, for his purpose, and for his honor. You're a testimony for God. You get the benefits. You say, Allah, you get a cell phone, you get the benefits, renew the contract, and you get an upgrade. Ne? And the seat at the table prepared by the Lord. You see, God loves to restore. He restored Job's fortunes in Job 42. He restored Naaman's flesh from leprosy. In 2 Kings 5, Hezekiah's life in Isaiah 38. And as we read David's soul in Psalm 23, we also see that restoration. And then Nebuchadnezzar, 
After he had become like a beast in the field, Daniel 4 says he was restored. Do you have any doubts of God's restoration power? Restoration power. He restores lands. He restores borders, inheritances, temples, health, life, and the priesthood. Even the youth in Psalm 103, if you read it, he will restore your youth. At the pinnacle of redemptive history, when God restores all things, he will gather all of us together from every tribe and tongue and nation. It is hard to believe there is something better than redemption at that time. But there is, there is something better, and it means a lot in these troubled times. God is going to restore society as it was meant to be. People living in unity of purpose, gladly submitting to the perfect will of God who binds us together. Revelation 21 verse 5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. You want to be restored? There's an open invitation. You want to be part of that crowd that will be seeing our Lord come up and take us home forever. You are the chooser. You are the one that must make the choice. God bless you richly.